Hello, sci-fi fans. This is Peter Williams from Stargate. I play Apophis. You know me as Apophis. You know, the guy in the gold suit. And you're listening to the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. If you like what we're serving here at the Sci-Fi Diner, feel free to leave us a tip at patreon.com backslash sci-fi. Spelled the right way. And by Audible. Get a free audiobook when you sign up today. Audibletrial.com backslash Sci-Fi Diner. Engage. Science fiction is an existential metaphor. It allows us to tell stories about the human condition. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast, where we serve up interviews, news, and our view on the world of science fiction. Come, grab a chair, and enjoy the conversations. I think we've got an unexpected guest. Rose, we're going, we don't need Rose. I've got a bad feeling about it. Hello there, hello there. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Herzog. And good evening, I'm Miles P. McLaughlin. And we have with us a very special guest, actually a returning guest to the Sci-Fi Diner. Jim, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, Jim Arrowwood here from central Nebraska. (laughs) Yeah. Great to be on the diner again. It's great. It's been... It's probably been years. Two couple years, of years. Three years. Yeah, it's been a little bit since we had you on. Um, <laughs> for those of you that don't know, Jim and I do this other podcast called The Orbital Sword, and um, that was an evolution out of the Dune Saga podcast, um, which as we get closer to the new Dune movie, we're going to have to revitalize that for an episode or two. I believe you're right. Yeah. But anyways... Um, but Jim, it's great to have you on, and we're we're here tonight. What are we talking about tonight, Miles? We are doing our review of Star Trek VI: The Undiscovered Country. And by review, we're just looking back on it, reflecting on it. We've been on this journey for those of you who've been with us, watching all the Star Trek movies in the order that they came out: the good, the bad, the ugly. And uh, my understanding is that this is one of the good ones. I'm gonna have fun talking about this. Oh, one. good. Well, I can't wait. I can't wait. Before we do that, let's, uh, Jim, uh, I want to catch up with you a little bit. Um, the sure. last time I think you were on, you were maybe doing the Babylon 5 project podcast, Babylon project podcast, maybe. I don't even know. It's been a while. Um, yeah, that would have been the early days of the Babylon project podcast, yeah. uh, along with Raul. And uh, we added JP Harvey joined us. And then a friend of mine, Troy Rudder, up in Iowa, he he edits it for us. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah, we got a whole crew. <laughs> and we are, at this point, we're about half, we're, well, about two-thirds of the way through season four. Wow. And then there's only one more season, right? We've only, only ran five On seasons, record. right? Yeah. yeah. But uh, when that's over with, we are going to continue on. We're going to do the movies. We're going to do Crusade. And we're going to talk about books, too. Oh, good. So you uh no shortage of material for that. No, we could be we could be on this project for years. Oh <laughs> uh, well very good, very good. Well, my understanding is that's not the only podcast that you do. What no. other pod- what other podcasts are you involved with? Well, I'm I'm with you and David on uh on the Orbital Sword. Yep. Um, we it. read sci- science fiction books and fantasy books and do a commentary on those. Um, I also 
am currently working on uh, a Klingon assault group podcast. Uh, we call it CAG, and um, that is a that's kind of a worldwide club of those of us that are fans of Klingons, and it's called Bound by Honor, and Bound is in books the way they're bound, and we're taking a look at books from uh, from the Star Trek novels that have been published over the years that focus on Klingons, and we're doing reviews of those, and I'm on that show with um, a gentleman in Florida, and another one in Canada. Wow. That's so, awesome. and that one is, uh, I learned how to edit. So that's, that's my job is to edit and get that one out. Awesome. Awesome. So what do you, what do you, what are you using to edit? Uh, audacity. Oh, that, it's a good, it's a good, good program to use for that. So the Klingon yeah. assault pride. So you, you're happy with the movie that we're reviewing tonight because there's no shortage of Klingons in it. Absolutely. That's that's I was very anxious to get on this one because it's about Klingons. Right. It is. It is absolutely about that. Um my understanding too is that you are doing uh you you run a blog and it's partially and maybe I maybe maybe it's two blogs, but um it's partially you doing book reviews like Hyperion and the sequel to Hyperion and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh some of your most recent blogs, but you also do autograph collecting. Tell us a little bit about uh, that. Okay. It's uh, through the mail. TTM autograph collecting is what I do. And I also do in-person autograph collecting when when uh, the opportunity presents itself. And basically what you do is you get some large envelopes and you get a hold of prints of the actors. And... Uh, you mail it to them along with a letter, uh, you know, and you request that they sign their autograph and send it back to you. You send a, st- a self-addressed stamped envelope and everything, and sometimes you get a response and sometimes you don't. Uh, I'm looking at my wall over here. I've got two Walter Koenigs. I've got Jamie Bamber. I've got Mark Alamo. I've got a. Aubrey uh just tons of them over there. I've got Quark. I've got Tuvok, uh, Captain Archer. I, I have uh, Admiral Nechev. I mean, I got tons of them. And uh, that that's just, and it's just the tip of the iceberg for what a person can get if they're willing to put in the time. I handwrite all my letters and put the postage on everything and send it out and see what happens. I've got right now, I've got about 16 uh, requests out there that have not been fulfilled, but otherwise I've got a whole binder full. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So like, it's like coming home to Christmas every day. Like what's in the mail? Who knows? It, it can be, but it can also be really disappointing when someone you really wanted uh, doesn't do a return. Right. And uh, I've, as I said, I've got 16 of them out there right now, and some of those are Babylon 5 people, and some of them are Star Trek people that, that have not returned. 
the the game is is to keep track of how many days it takes to get them back. So, for instance, Walter Koenig returned to me uh, in about two weeks. Wow. Yeah, I sent to Michael Forrest too. You know, he was on he was Apollo on right. Who Mourns for Adonais. Uh, that one was like ten days. Wow. Okay. Uh, Rene Aubergenois was a month. Uh, Captain Archer was about six months because, you know, he was on location, uh, you know, and I sent to his agent in, uh, Los Angeles. So, but he was on location down in new Orleans doing, doing that gig down there. I think the strangest one that I have ever gotten back is Jonathan Frakes. Okay. His his address, believe it or not, to send to for an autograph request is his accountant. Okay. And I I took a shot. I sent it to his his accountant, and two months later, I got Jonathan Frakes. That is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Wow. We know these make, so, these, these make good stories too. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and the hobby is the hobby is getting more and more difficult all the time. Uh, you know, you it's it's expensive if you want to get prints because, of course, if you find a, a photo on Google that you like and you try to download it and print it, nobody's going to print it here in the United States. Right. So I have to send clear over to China to get prints. Wow. And and the prints are 98 cents a piece, but the freight is is murder. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, and then then I've got a lot of in-person autographs that uh I I really enjoy meeting meeting the people and you know, if I can get an, a photograph with with a star or with a person, that's almost as good as having their autograph. That's true. Yeah. Miles, were you going to say something? I'm sorry. I jumped in at one part. Oh, I, I'm sure any sci-fi fan is listening to what, this collection you got. And if they enjoy the autograph collecting that you do, Jim, I'm sure they're envious of uh, your uh, collection. <laughs> there, there are, uh, and, and it's not just actors and actresses. I have uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's autograph, uh, and several musicians. I've got Wynton Marcellus, Ooh. and I and I sent to him and told him that I was a teacher and I use uh, some films that he that he was featured in for my eighth grade class. And I mentioned that and asked him to send a message back to my class, and he did. He sent back, you know, to Jim all the best and to Jim's students practice. Linton Marcellus. Oh, that's awesome. And then here's another really neat story. Uh, I got uh, the doctor from Voyager. Okay. The names are escaping me right now. Robert Picardo. Uh, yeah. There you go. Robert Picardo. I sent a request to him, and every every uh, quarter I show an, the episode of Star Trek uh, Voyager with him in it called Virtuoso. That's the one where he sings and the culture brings him down to the planet to sing. And uh, they all think he's great, but then they invent their own singer and he's a nobody then. 
uh, I used that for a writing project in one of my classes, and I sent to him and I told him about this. And he sent me back an autograph that's hanging in my classroom right now, and it says, uh, to all the brilliant minds in Jim's classroom, best of luck. <laughs> that's awesome. That is yeah, fantastic. So, so it's kind of neat. He's hanging there on the wall, and the kids are like, who's he? And I well, I'll show you. And so I put the episode on, and, and they love it. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is that is fantastic. And, and you know, here you are. You're talking about it. I mean, you just have all these stories that go with this, with this. Yeah. And, and I want to say that this this type of autograph collecting also is almost I want to say a lot lost art form. You don't you don't hear too many people these days like students and like. I remember doing this as a kid a little bit, but you don't hear very many people sending out autographs like this, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there is a huge community that does this and I just don't know about it. There, there is, and it's not very public. Uh, the person that got me into it is our editor for the Babylon project podcast. His name is Troy Rudder. Uh, he actually published self published his own book on how to do this stuff. And he has been, collecting autographs for 30 years wow he has and and he he's really heavy into sports cards and he's got complete collections or complete series of baseball cards with autographs on them i mean just the other just a couple of months ago he got don mattingly wow i mean yeah that's insane Uh It is, and he's got binders and binders full. I mean, he's got three six-inch binders full of 8 by 10 uh, actors and personalities and things like that. So he's kind of the king of it. Wow. So, so if you want to get into this, go on to Amazon and type in Troy Rudder. It's called Autograph Collecting Secrets. And anything you'd ever want to know about autograph collecting is in that book. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I'm not sure that I'm going to delve into it right now. I just picked up the hobby (laughs) of record collecting and that's, uh, that's more of my speed right now. So there you go. (laughs) But but yeah, well, that's awesome. And, uh, thanks for sharing a little bit about what you do. And then you, then you write blogs about it, right? Uh, yeah, I include that on my blog. If you go to uh, Jim's Sci-Fi, all one word, dot blogspot dot com, and that's my blog. I have my book reviews and movie reviews and things on one page, and then up on one of the tabs it says autograph collecting, and just almost, almost my entire collection is up there. Yeah, awesome. Very good. Well, thank you for sharing. And uh, where would you? Where can people find your blog and find out? I assume you have links to the other podcasts you do in your blog too. Uh, yes, um, I, I'm a little behind on the blog. I got some work to do on that. Um, I'll tell you what. You know, I'm a teacher by day, Jedi by night, or excuse me, blogger by night. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, when school starts which it's been going now for about three weeks. Uh, my blog just kind of has to get set aside. Right. But it's, as I said, it's Jim sci-fi.blogspot.com. Okay. There you go. Jim sci-fi.blogspot.com. 
Well, thanks, Jim. Uh, Miles, why don't you uh, take us in? We're going to talk Star Trek VI tonight. Okay. Well, uh, a short little synopsis. Um, Star Trek VI, after an explosion on their moon Praxis, the Klingons have an estimated 50 years before their ozone layer is completely depleted and they all die. They have only one choice, to make peace with the Federation, which will mean an end to a 70 years of conflict. Captain James T. Kirk and crew are called upon to help in the negotiations because of their experience with the Klingons. Peace talks don't go quite, don't quite proceed, and Kirk and McCoy are convicted of assassinating the Klingon High Chancellor and imprisoned on Ruapente, a snowy, hard labor prison camp. Will they manage to escape, and will there be ever be peace with the Klingons? Hmm. All right. That's a nice synopsis for it. So uh, mm-hmm. what direction do we want to take this? We have this movie, when it came out, made, uh, you, you have the stats there, made um, mm-hmm. 74,000, 74 million domestically, and then another 22 worldwide, bringing it up to almost 100, $100 million. 100. Yeah. And For so, 1991, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. good. I was just hopping on to see what uh, Final Frontier made. And that one made well. They don't have the foreign for it, but the uh, but the domestic made fifty two million, so a little bit less. Oh yeah, but also a different quality of movie. So right, yeah, very good. So uh, where were you guys when you first saw this movie? Let's start with you, Miles. Well, I I, I managed to see it in the theaters. Um, and uh, I was I was hopeful that this movie was going to be be better than the last one because one, well, this is the last time the band was going to be together. Uh, this, and if you can imagine the Rolling Stones making their announcement that okay, this is our last show, we're done. Uh, this is pretty much what we got with the crew of the Enterprise. We were. This this was going to be their last mission together, uh, all at least all of them together, and so this th- th- this movie was their send off for them. And did we know did did we know that going into the movie that this was this was going to be their last movie? I, I'm I'm reasonably sure it was. Yes, uh, Jim, do you know? Uh, yeah. According according to director Nick Meyer, it was supposed to be the last. Um, original series cast movie. Okay, yeah, and yeah, it, yeah so in, and it makes sense. And I know that they had talked at one point about bringing some of the next gen crew in because I think next gen was airing when it when it was, yeah. came out or something. This uh, is ninety one, yeah. so we're in, we're in the middle of their of their run, and I and probably the the powers that be were already looking ahead, thinking, okay, can we do some movies with the next gen yeah. uh, cast sometime in the near future? Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the things that they wanted to do at the end of this movie was hand the keys to the Enterprise over to Captain Picard, which you know. When you think about that, oh, yeah, that would have been really, really neat. But when you consider that there's 70 years between the end of this movie and when Picard starts on uh, the Enterprise D, that wouldn't have been very practical. We we wouldn't have had the Enterprise B, the Enterprise C, 
Um, true. So it it wouldn't have been very good continuity. No, I'm glad, no <laughs> glad they didn't do that. <laughs> I'm glad they didn't do yeah. that. Jim, where yeah. were you, Jim, where were you when you first saw this movie? Well, this uh, this is one of the last movies I ran in the in the theater. That's right. Uh, you ran a theater for a while. Yep, I owned and operated a movie theater. Um, and this is one of the, the last movies that I ran before I, I had to close the place. Um, so it was a Thursday night before the opening Friday night, uh, that I had put the film together and invited about four friends, Star Trek fans over to the theater and we locked it up and at about 10 o'clock at night, we watched it just us, a screening for just us. Okay, that's cool. So it 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 was really neat. (laughs) You know, we had pizza, popcorn and all that good stuff. And we sat there in the theater and and really enjoyed the movie. That's awesome. I don't know where I first saw the movie. I think I know that. So you said 91. I know I didn't see it in theaters. I wasn't much of a, a much more of a Star Trek fan today than I was growing up. Uh, Star Wars movies, I would go see those in theaters, but Star Trek just never appealed to me. It wasn't until much later that I got on board with it. Um, I know I watched through a lot of the movies maybe 15 years ago, and I assume that I watched this one as a part of it. I remember watching it and uh, and really enjoying it, and so it was a pleasure to go back and rewatch it again. Um, yeah, You know, so... I assume that you guys all like watched it recently just to kind of get get ready for the show. What was it like going back and revisiting this movie after however many years you had last seen it? Jim, let's start with you. Well, you know, with all the Star Trek movies, and and this is every single one of them, I go to the theater, I sit down and it, and I don't know if it's just because I'm so fired up or what, but it just it goes by so fast. That that I come out of the theater going, yeah, I, I you know I really don't know if I like this or not. I've got to go see it again, and I go and I see him two, couple more times at least, and and I enjoy him a lot more because I get to see more, and something like that. So then when I go back and I look at a Star Trek movie like I did, uh, as a matter of fact, I watched it twice. Um, I really enjoy it because. Uh, I know what's going on. I know what's going to happen, but then you can see more depth in the movie the next time that you watch it. So I, I think that's why I kind of enjoy revisiting them is because there's more depth to it and you can focus on more detail and more of the way the uh, characters behave and things like that. So I, I really enjoy going back and looking at him again. Well, you know, and I think that when you go back and you, you watch a movie, you're right. You know, I watched this movie once and there's stuff that I read about the movie afterwards. I'm like, Oh, I didn't think about it because I got, I was distracted pleasantly, of course, by the story, the ships, the action, the things that are going on. Um, but watching it after, after that all has been taken in and watching it again allows you to, look a little bit more analytically at what's going on. And so I see why you're, why you do that. Yeah. As a, as a member of the Klingon assault group, I consider myself a Klingon. So I, 
it, it's really nice to be able to pick up on cultural nuances and things like that. Because when I go to conventions and I do panels, I like to uh, I like to do a Klingon culture panel, and I really enjoy being able to talk about Klingon culture from the point of view of the movies. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, Miles, for you, going back and rewatching this movie, what was it like for you? What did what what did you pull from it this time? What'd you like? I watched it. Um, I have the special director's cut DVDs they put out back in the early two thousands, and they have. I've I've been kind of uh, plugging uh, the the Akuda commentary on all, all the movies I've seen, and I'll still plug it with this one because <laughs> they give you they they give you some nice facts. As you're watching the movie, it's a, it's a silent text commentary, um, and so what I watched had a few more scenes in it, um, which was nice. Um, and, and just 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 thinking, Leonard, Leonard Nimoy had a big hand in, in in writing this movie and putting it together, and what he he what he was trying to say, uh, it was. And just reflecting on the time, I mean, Star Trek often reflects the time it comes out. And this is shortly after uh, the wall, the walls coming down in, in East Germany. Uh, our relations with the former Soviet Union are, are got, have, have gotten a lot better. I th- don't think, I think Gorbachev was still in office at the time. Well, yeah, Chernobyl had just happened, or not too long ago before that. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, I remember Leonard Nimoy saying he, he envisioned his, his Chancellor Gorkin character to be a um, a type of Gorbachev, I guess you could say. Uh, I mean, the Klingons were always a type of, back in the 60s, the, the, either the Russians or some totalitarian regime, so it was kind of appropriate that he was thinking that the Klingon leader in his story would be, you know, a peacemaker. Mm. Um, so just, just looking at some of the political overtones with that, looking at, um, where, where the, where the crew of the enterprise were in their lives. Um, several of them were going to step down to retire from active starship duty. Uh, we find out, uh, Sulu gets, finally gets his promotion to captain to the Excelsior and just, just for whatever reason, just feeling happy for him. I mean, I always liked Sulu a couple of years ago. I met him at a convention and he was just a super nice guy. And so in this last movie of his, he finally gets, you know, he gets his promotion, he gets his own starship and he gets you know, one of the best starships in the fleet. So I was just, just as happy for him that he, that he got it. And, um, as you're just just thinking about where where the crew were in life and 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 where they were going from here um and thinking that this is a more of a human presentation of our heroes in this film uh we get to see kirk still has hatred for the klingons because of they they killed his son uh we see other you know the, the crew still have a, a a distrust of the Klingons, and just just seeing this was a very human crew. They weren't you know they weren't the perfect crew of TNG, which actually had had, had Mr. Gene Roddenberry 
not too happy with this film at first because he didn't like the idea of his his heroes being you know this human and prejudiced at the time. Um, he, he actually passed away just before the film was, was released in theaters, but he did, he did get a chance to have a private, uh, showing of it. Um, so there was just, just see, seeing some of that. Um, and just from a production standpoint, Star Trek has always reused whatever it had. So if you, if you look very carefully at, at the, the enterprise and, and, and the, and, and, Excelsior, the, 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 the sets, you could tell they are definitely borrowing from the TNG sets a lot. They just redress them a little to make them look a little different, but yeah. they make good, they make good use of, uh, um, TNG. Well, TNG made, you know, a lot of that is a redress of, uh, some, some of the older Star Trek film sets as well. So they're, they're continuing that tradition to s- save some money. Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the script and, uh, Boy, this this script had a unique journey. I mean, Har Bennett uh, did it and got fired from it, or he kind of got fired. He says term was up, but he chose not to do it. Then Walter Koenig uh, wrote his version of it, where everyone died but Spock and McCoy, and then uh, then Nimoy came in and uh, you know pitched the uh, Russian representation idea. So. Yeah, it, Nick Meyer talks about that on uh, the DVD, or excuse me, the Blu-ray that I have, that uh, he and Nimoy took a walk on the beach, and Nimoy pitched this to him, and it struck a chord, because, uh, you know, he, he wasn't planning on doing any more Star Trek. Uh, he had done Wrath of Khan, and then he did um, four also, Boy, I believe. Yeah, and uh, he he they wanted him to do three, but he said no. I'm not going to do three. Uh, I don't do resurrection movies. <laughs> as far as he was concerned, Spock was dead, and should and should have stayed dead. Of course, you know he appreciated what they did in bringing him back. So, but uh, you know he. He and Nimoy discussed this. They hammered out what the story was supposed to be like, and uh, it moved forward from there. Yeah, very. Yeah, and it definitely. Uh, and for me, the the story, you know, still really works, um, and uh, it, it really holds together well. Well, well, now now it's an entertainment more than. Um, than it was then, which was really a, a statement, a political statement. Oh, it was. Uh, yeah, uh, during the time of Glasnost, with uh, you know Gorbachev in the uh, on the Russian side of it, and, and Ronald Reagan here uh, trying to hammer out a way to get along and and stop this Cold War, which was costing way more than anybody could afford. Um, you know. And and uh, it it made the undiscovered country a very unique Star Trek movie because there wasn't anything really like it before, and there hasn't been anything really really like it since. Well, you know what I really appreciated. We we talk about that, but this, one of the things I really appreciated in in the way they put the film together is a reference. There's so many references to prior Star Trek movies, um, 
the uh, you know Kurt dealing with the loss of his son, the Klingons, and playing that into the overall overarching prejudice he has toward the Klingons. And, but you but you see that from a, a couple different fronts and from a couple different people. And I like I like the way they kind of built this. So if this was the final movie in the six movie arc of the old crew, this was this was a nice wrap up to that. And the fact that, you know, in a couple of those movies, the Klingons are the baddies, you know, the fact that they bring a resolution to that was, or they try to bring a resolution to that is, is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I think when I think of the first three movies, I don't think of them as very political movies. I mean, they are, there's politics there, but when you get to like the voyage home, I want to say plot, maybe I, maybe I'm saying that wrong like really hard hitting messages like the voyage home is really an ecological message throughout the uh-huh. um the five really begins to say this idea of a search for something greater a spiritual search if you will and then whether that's you know real or not and then we of course have this movie but i felt like the first three were more just stories maybe i'm wrong about that oh, i no i i kind of agree with you that yeah. this one See, in my mind, I don't know what the, what the uh, executives at Paramount were thinking. But, you know, let's face it. Star Trek V kind of tanked. It did. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm not blaming anybody. Shatner had in mind a whole different movie than he wound up making. And they just would not give him the money to make that movie that he wanted to make, which would have probably been way more spectacular. And then, you know, so Paramount said, you know, well, if we're going to keep this franchise going, we have to really do something good. They have to redeem themselves. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which they absolutely did. I mean... Look at the cast for crying out loud. Well, I was I going to ask you what, what makes this movie, uh, obviously there's some scripting and there's there's a bigger budget for this movie, but uh, what for you, in your opinion, in Miles, um, maybe we can go to you, what makes this movie work for you? Like what, uh, uh, you mentioned the cast. What about the cast in this movie made its work? Um, there, I think there's a, several things that made this movie work. Um, one is what, what was lacking in, in the fifth film, whoever is responsible for it. The fifth film had Kirk look strong and almost trying to save his crew from themselves. Where in this time, everybody seems to have their time under the sun. Everybody has a chance to contribute and, and do something positive um, as far as far as as far as the crew goes, uh, they got some heavy hitters as far as guest stars in this film. Um, you had Kim Cattrall. Uh, she may, was not qu- quite as known as she is now, but um, she she did a fantastic job. Um, oh, I'm having a brain freeze. Um, Christian Plummer, Christopher Plummer. No, oh, the character she played. Um, oh. The character she played in, in, in Star Trek. Um, I'm, I'm losing some geek cred here, but uh, Jim, do you know uh, Lieutenant Valeris? Valeris, thank you. She, I mean, um, you, you had uh, David Warner 
play play the the Klingon Chancellor. I thought he brought he brought the gravitas that role needed. Uh, I also think um, you had uh, Christopher Plummer play the, the Klingon general, and him and Kirk have a a good slugfest with the, with the, with the starship battle. And then you had Kurtwood Smith play the Federation apprentice. And most people know him as playing the, the, the funny dad in that 80s show, but he's played a lot of characters that are, you know, he's played a lot of bad guy roles. He's played roles that, uh, that were much more, that, that were a lot less comedic. And so, um, Oh Yeah. I mean, he was he was huge in like Dead Poets Society. Oh yeah. Yes, yes, he was a dad in Dead Poets Society. Yes. Yeah. So they 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 got some of the best guest stars they could possibly get for this movie. Oh yeah. That helped and, that helped make this film. And then and then the way they the way they put them together, I mean, you've got David Warner, uh, you know, uh, Chancellor Gorkin. Whose name itself is a is a combination of Gorbachev and Lincoln, okay? And you know he was even made up to resemble Lincoln, and he's by himself wanting to begin negotiations for peace because again, everybody's in the middle of a war, a cold war, and nobody can afford it anymore. It's got to go away. Yeah. Uh, you've got Kirk and uh general chang who are having this little mental battle back and forth they're they're having their own little cold war you know they want to see they want to get together and fight with each other and um you know and the opportunity rises when uh gorkin is killed and so these two guys are going to go at it there's there's just nothing else to it <laughs> and what's what makes it so neat is uh, I don't know if you're aware, but Christopher Plummer and uh, William Shatner are very good friends and have been for many, many years. Oh, that makes it even better. Oh, yeah. Those two guys worked in radio together when they were 16 and 17 years old. <laughs> so they go way back. Oh, yeah. yeah they and they're really good friends. And uh, there's some neat stories about how some of the things, some of the little rivalries they had with each other. Uh, uh, Christopher Plummer was a, an actor in a play and Kirk was his understudy, not Kirk, but uh, Shatner was his understudy and uh, Plummer got sick and Kirk stepped in and took over and did a really great job. The critics loved it. And then they pick at each other about it. You know, I was better than you. And no, you weren't. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. So. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, these two guys. And so to get them together again so many years later and put them on screen together and watch them play off of each other and they're, they're great friends, just amazing. Yeah. That it, had to make it, it, it helps explain the chemistry. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely does. You know, one person that I forgot was in the movie, and when he popped up in the screen, I like I knew I knew exactly who he was was Christian Slater. Yes, oh, yeah. You know, he he pops up and he he did a walk on role number one. He got paid seven hundred fifty bucks for the role, and he framed that check. 
you know, yeah. you know, up on up on his wall because he just wanted to be in Star Trek. And I was just when he popped in, I was like, Christian Slater. Yeah, I was like, you know, I was like, yeah, you know. So that was that was really cool. To see well, if you if you watch the opening credits, the casting director for that film was Mary Jo Slater, Christian Slater's mother. Well, I don't know that I picked up picked up on that. No <laughs> <laughs> wonder he got a walk on role. <laughs> Yeah, see, I did my homework yeah, for this, he did, you know. He, he, he did, he, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it helps when you know people, huh? <laughs> just, a, just a little bit. I forgot. And I guess, you know, Miles, you were saying that this kind of dropped in the middle of next gen. I forgot that Worf was in this movie. Or not Worf, Worf's grandfather. Great Michael grandfather. Dorn, yeah. Yeah, Michael Dorn was in the movie. Colonel and, Worf. Yeah, so when he popped in, I was like, oh, it's Worf. So, that was very cool. Yeah, yeah it was very cool to see him in that role, playing yeah. it. And my understanding, and I I missed this, but um, Renee, what's the guy's last name again? Abergenois. Yeah, I can never pronounce it. Abergenois. My understanding is that he is in wasn't in the theatrical release, but was in some of the later releases of the movie. Yes. Um, and what was his role? Because I missed it. He played, Colonel West. Yeah. Oh, he plays you, Colonel West. He plays this conspirator with, um, with 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 the the rogue elements of Starfleet that want to keep the, the the war going on with the Klingon the rogue Klingon elements that want to keep the war going on. Okay, he actually is the one. He dresses. He's disguised as a Klingon. He tries to kill um, the president. Um, and what I was talking about earlier, our, our hero, all our heroes had a good, you know, contributed. In this, I don't think you know. When I say that they did, I mean the last film. I think a lot of them looked weak, and this in this film, I think they all look strong. Scotty is the one that ends up taking him out. Oh, so uh, he's the one that he's he's a sharpshooter from the. Uh... Yes, yes, he's a sharpshooter. Oh, see, he's, I didn't realize that was him. But he's seen earlier with uh, two Starfleet admirals proposing a way to rescue Kirk and McCoy from from uh, uh, the Klingon Empire. Oh. Uh, I don't remember how much of it, it, it that got in the, the the theatrical release, but yeah, I I think that my Blu-ray, which came in a box set with with the complete uh, original series movies, I think that was a theatrical release because I, I was a little upset. I had never watched that particular recording before. And I watched this one, and there is nothing in there. Uh, you know, when they break into the president's office and present this plan to get him back from the Klingons and everything, and uh, Rene Auberjonois, or Colonel West, says, well, frankly, sir, we'll go in there and clean their chronometers. That's <laughs> not in mine. And then after Colonel West is shot and falls to the floor, and they go to pull his mask off or, yeah, pull his um, disguise off. That's cut out of my version, too. Okay. So, you know, and I think there's I think there's a reason for that. I've been I've been giving that some thought. OK. And on the one hand, this is supposed to be a serious story and somewhat of a dark movie, because now we're getting we're seeing glimpses of corruption starting in starfleet right uh, which right which we hadn't seen before i mean starfleet was a boy scout troop 
Okay. Nobody did wrong. Everybody followed followed all the rules. And when Kirk broke the rules, he was right because he was on the spot and able to do that. And this is a darker, a darker movie. So it seems like maybe those little comedic scenes they kind of took out of there. And another reason that to me, this is a darker movie is because some of the things that were in the script that made me uncomfortable as far as Star Trek is concerned, you know, uh, guess who's coming to dinner, that line that was supposed to be Nichelle Nichols line and she refused to say it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so they gave it to Chekhov. Why did and, they, why, um, why did she refuse to say it? I'm, well, maybe I'm being an idiot guess who, here. guess who's coming to dinner? What does that refer to? Well, I don't know. You're going to have to, have it that. refers to a movie where there was a intermixed, uh, um, racially mixed couple oh. planning to get married. Okay. Okay. And then, um, Brock Peters gives that little speech about how the Klingons are going to be the trash of the galaxy and we're just going to have to take care of them anyway. We might as well, you know, just not even bother with them and all this stuff. He was really upset about having to do that part because, because of the racial implications that went along with that. And I'll tell you what, I can remember sitting there in the theater and again, just with my recent rewatching, that, that kind of stuff made me a little uncomfortable. You know, I think that it's uh, so. I of course watched just a week ago again, or like Saturday or something like that, and I found that stuff in particular very relevant to current society. You know, and some of the crap that we've dealt with over the past couple of years, and. I understand. I understand why it'd be hard to record and watch that and and act that out, but holy, we we haven't learned too much, <laughs> or it doesn't seem like we've learned too much because I mean you have you have the same thing being out with the the people that are that are coming from Mexico or and the way yeah. they're viewed, and uh, we've had our own sense of uh, race riots in the past couple years that. This stuff is still relevant and highlighting this as being something we have to continue to work through. Well, I'll tell you what, my personal point of view is that for, for many, many years, we were going in the right direction. It was very, very slow. Uh, and it was, it was difficult and slow. And as you say, Scott, in the last couple of years, it, it, everything, all the progress we've made, at least in my lifetime, because I'm old enough to remember watching the race riots in Watts and things like that taking place right on television in front of me during the news. I remember that stuff. Um, we, we've gone backwards. Yeah. Or at least the news media seems to paint it that way, you know. Well, so I, but yeah, I, I think that I think that uh, there's a we have a we have I do sense in general society we have a less to, we 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 are less tolerant of people who not only look differently but believe differently. Uh huh. And I think that that's 
but this movie, so I think that this movie is relevant because you deal with two cultures that believe differently and they're trying to reconcile and there's dissenters and, you know, it's, it's everything in that. Yeah. But, but it, it still, it still makes me uncomfortable to see that in Star Trek. I can imagine because Star Trek where, has never been that transparent about uh, the um, Starfleet. So well, that's why I said this film it, it, it's more of a more of a human depiction of our our heroes and and everybody. It's and and this actually got Gene Roddenberry very upset. I mean, there's two accounts where he saw the film. Um, in a private showing and he gave a thumbs up, but behind the scenes, he was actually trying to stop this film from being shown. He did. He didn't like what they were doing with, um, with them. I mean, and, and originally they were going to have Savick be the uh, Starfleet officer. That is kind of like the working with conspirators and, um, Roddenberry expressed his displeasure over that, but, um, he didn't create the character of Savick. It was actually Nicholas Meyer. And um, Meyer even said, "Is it, you know, she's mine. I, I, I create her or whatever. But uh, when I was watching the text commentary, uh, Kim Cattrall actually only agreed to do this if she's playing a different character. She didn't want to be Savick. Okay. Yeah. And, and it, was, it was supposed to be Savick. And you know that, and it it kind of, uh, if I'm not mistaken, didn't we learn that Savick was like half um, Romulan? She wasn't a hundred percent Vulcan. Yeah, there's it. It's actually it's in a deleted scene in in Wrath of Khan that that she's half Romulan. Uh, the tie-in novel mentions that. Other novels that that deal with Savick, you know, mention her half uh, Romulan heritage. Yeah. Now see that, that, that brings up an interesting point in the movie because when they're in the president's office and you have the Klingon ambassador and the Romulan ambassador and the Vulcan ambassador, you have the Romulan ambassador in that office. Why would he be conspiring, uh, with Starfleet, if he didn't have a stake in it, and perhaps Kim Cattrall was supposed to be Savick, who was half Romulan, that would make and sense. that kind, of, and that was a little plot hole, just a little plot hole that got through. Yeah, well, it it makes sense. Um, and you were as you were talking about it, I said, well, didn't isn't that the way the uh, Final Frontier started? You know, a Romulan, a Klingon, and a uh, Starfleet, all in a Jeez, That sounds like the beginning of a bad joke. Yeah, it, <laughs> it, it is a bad joke. Well, you know, you know, you were talking about the corruption within Starfleet, and I was thinking through the different series. Probably the one that we see that's most immorally ambiguous at best at times is 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 Deep Space Nine. Um, otherwise, but but are you talking Starfleet in general? Not so much. The ships are the stations. I, I don't know. It, it's always been Starfleet in general has been, you know, a Boy Scout troop. Right. And and you don't, if there's going to be corruption there, 
it isn't going to be because of bad people. It's going to be because of good people that are getting influenced by something bad. I mean, you remember that Next Generation episode uh, where the little bugs were in uh, conspiracy, change, yeah, conspiracy, changing everybody, and, oh, yeah. and you know, you, you don't have that. See, because I think what Roddenberry's ideal was is that we had done away with all those things. Right. Uh, and every it was utopia. We didn't have to work for a living. We worked because we wanted to make things better. So it wasn't for accumulating wealth or accumulating material goods. And so there wouldn't be any of this stuff going on. Yeah. I don't know. You know, you look at you look at Kirk and uh, you understand his pain at the loss of his son and why he would be bitter toward the Klingons. Oh, well, of course. And that's uh, uh, so it, as as Miles said, he says this is very human. This is very human. And we see we see a very human reaction to uh, a lot of these characters. I think it's very realistic. But you're right. Yeah. It isn't Starfleet that has been presented as Roddenberry presented Starfleet. Right. Now, however, um, have either of you ever read any of David Gerald's uh, Star Wolf series? I, I, I can't say I have. I have not. Voyage, we, chatted, we chatted with Voyage, Gerald about it, but we didn't. Uh... Oh, yeah. Voyage of the Star Wolf in the last book, the third chapter, David Gerald kind of blows it all out of the water, The this utopian idea with a, with a, a chapter about how when humanity travels to the stars, we will carry our memes with us. Now, by memes, he's not talking about little pictures with silly little captions on them that you find on Facebook, but what we are as humans, let's face it, we're greedy, we're vindictive, we are good, we're good and bad, right? right? And those things are going to follow us as humanity moves out to the stars, we're we're going to be human. Yeah. So, uh, on the one hand, undiscovered country definitely shows this. Absolutely. Probably, probably for the first time. Do we ever get that anywhere else in Star Trek after this? As far as seeing this. This this very human portrayal of Starfleet. Well, I think D Space Nine um, yeah. definitely does it. I mean, um, even in Next Gen, you it's not fans that call it the Bad Admiral. You're the Bad Admiral, I guess. Uh, Alex <laughs> Admiral Cartwright was the first Bad Admiral, um, but yeah, we saw many Bad Admirals in Next Gen and uh, D Space, and you know. Sometimes in, in D Space Nine. Oh um, yeah. And well, what about insurrection? For crying out loud! <laughs> insurrection—that's an excellent point. Um, in Star Trek Into Darkness, um, you know, the, I mean, um, right. you, you, had a, you know, Admiral Marcus was a bad role. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well see, and and go ahead. In one way, in one way, I think Star Trek needs to do that. It needs to put a little more reality in there but but not too much okay because this is it is 
our hope for the future is what Star Trek is. Right. And, and if you overdo the corrupt side of it too much, it, it's, it just becomes common and it's not special anymore. Yeah. And I agree with that. This is a, this is, I mean, we, we aren't looking for a Battlestar Galactica here where there's a lot of humanity in it. We're looking for something that gives us something to aspire to, maybe not perfect, but is, is, is better than what we have and something we can look forward to. Exactly. That yeah. we will improve ourselves as, as time goes on. We will begin to work for the betterment of ourselves rather than the accumulation of wealth. Yeah. No, I, I think this film did a good job with Kirk. I mean, they should Kirk actually had a, had a journey in this movie and absolutely he had, you know, in some character development. I mean, he starts out in the film, not wanting to have anything to do with the, you know, the, the, the peace process. Uh, he sees Chancellor Gorkon die right in front of him and, and Gorkon pleading with him. Don't let it end this way. I think that's when Kirk started to have a change of heart. Right. Um, about 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 his his feelings toward the Klingons and his feelings about uh, um, making peace with them. Uh, I thought there was a little, you know, in two in two hours. It's sometimes it seems like it's too fast, but I thought it was. They did a pretty good job of pacing Kirk's, um, you know, his 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 change. From where he he started to, to where he ended up, yeah. Um, till you know he he can, you know he can say to the new Klingon Chancellor that that uh, you know it's about being afraid of change. I was afraid of change, um, but uh, your father showed us a uh, you know a better way. Yeah, exactly. Not only did Kirk come around and deal with his uh, his own prejudice. But the Klingons came around too. Yeah, I mean, as at birth, is great. Yeah, yeah, as at birth, you know, was ready to uh, talk peace. Also, at that point, sincerely, where I didn't feel like she was very sincere prior to that, because of course, with her with her own father being killed, she would have been in some considerable pain herself. No, absolutely, absolutely. Well, we do. Uh, we're running out of time here tonight. We could talk for another hour or two, probably about this movie, because there's so much. Oh, we ha- yeah. so much we haven't covered. I mean, we haven't covered Shakespeare references, favorite moments, and uh, and uh, and all that. But um, and I regret that I have to. Uh, <laughs> now we have to. We, yeah, we have to go, and that's fine. That's fine. Uh, well, well you two could still talk for a while. Oh, we we could. We could. Do you want to talk a little bit more, Jim? Sure, I'm game. All right, we can talk a little bit more, but we do have to wrap it up. Miles, awesome to get some of your thoughts here in the movie tonight, and uh, and uh, it was definitely a good movie. Any final thoughts before you go? Um, I, I think this stands out as one of the best Star Trek films. Um, it also did a really good job of um, giving our heroes here a send-off. I gave them one last mission to do something great and it, it did it in a way that um, it challenged them, but also challenges us. And um, I, I think more, I, I think this film still speaks to us today. And so I hope hopefully more people will watch it. Mm-hmm. Awesome. 
Well, Miles, uh, thanks for uh, joining us tonight. Uh, good luck at work tonight. We're going to continue the show. I bid you both good night. All right. Bye. So long, Miles. Hopefully next time it won't be so long. Right. <laughs> Jim, it's a pleasure, pleasure, pleasure having you on and talking with you. Have a good All night. Right. Bye. Bye now. All right. You there, Jim? I'm still here. Good. I just hung up on Miles. It sounds <laughs> much more mean than it was. So uh, w- there's a lot of stuff, as we said, we haven't covered. Is there any direction in particular or anything you really want to talk about as we uh, were working here? Mm, I don't know. I kind of, I, I've kind of talked myself out. Um, <laughs> Well, on, so, on what I know. Well, let me let me let me ask you this. So, rewatching it, were there any particular favorite scenes that really captured you this this time, watching it? Um, I would I would have to say the gathering at dinner yes. would have to be one of my favorite scenes. So much tension within that room and subtext happening all over the place. Oh yeah, and and funny things too, you know. Oh yeah. Uh, they ask Kirk a direct question, and Spock clears his throat and answers for his captain. I, know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that takes some some uh, groomba to do that. <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think I mean, you know that that's the whole thing. Like Spock's kind of gotten Kirk into this mess. Yeah. And, you know, everybody's trying to get along um, seriously. You know, Uhura's trying trying to make conversation, and everybody's trying to get along, except these two guys at the end of the table. (laughs) Who are quoting Hamlet at each other. uh, Right. And and Kirk is, you know, this guy says, well, we need breathing room. And Kirk says, hey, yeah, Earth, Hitler, 1938. And it's like, holy moly. (laughs) Just go straight for the juggler. (laughs) Yeah, this is going to explode. You (laughs) You know, know, the other thing that I really liked about that scene is you see them all sitting there and the Klingons are picking up the silverware, the nice napkins and holding it up at angles. Like, this is foreign to them. They don't eat using that stuff. (laughs) Of course not. Of course not. And then blue food. All that blue food. I did. I did. I did read somewhere that the uh, that anytime you see Romulan ale, it's always a different shade of blue. Yeah, this looked really, really thin. Yeah. See, well, I mean, you're you're feeding it to the Klingons. You dilute it. You don't, you don't give them the best Romulan ale. No self-respecting Klingon would ever drink Romulan ale anyway. <laughs> well, and that's just as funny. <laughs> <laughs> you know but the fact that the, they, there is a. There is a funny story that Shatner tells oh, go ahead. about that scene. And they brought this food out to everybody, and it's squid. Mostly right. is what it is. Well, it looks like squid. Yeah, especially when that one Klingon's munching on it. Yeah. Nobody wanted anything to do with it. First of all, it's squid. Second of all, it's blue. All right? Nobody wanted, would, would, would touch it. And, and Nick Meyer comes in into the scene and he says look anybody that eats this will get 20 bucks per take okay now the way they explain it is is everybody's sitting at this table and this is not just a scene that's shot in one take there's like 17 different takes so they can change camera angles and get this shot and that shot and everything else and Shatner said I was going to get this money. 
And so every single take, 17 takes, he uh, made sure that he ate and he went after Nick Meyer to collect what he had coming for that. <laughs> Let's see, 20 bucks, 17 takes. Let's do the math here real quick. I mean, that's a, you know, a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And that that particular thing was partially uh, a revenge kind of thing that he he and Nick Meyer had a little bit of a problem oh, with this did. movie. Because oh. when Kirk says, let them die, and the camera cuts away to Spock, there's a scene there that got cut out where where Kirk says, let them die, and then he, then he shakes his head like, I, you know, that's not what I wanted to say. I didn't mean to say that. Hmm. That gets cut out, and then they cut back to him, and he continues with what he was going to say. He, According to Shatner, he told Nick Meyer, that scene must stay in this movie, because I don't want to be portrayed as a racist. Hmm. Nick Meyer cut it out. Yeah. And and that was kind of a, a bit of a bone of contention between these two guys. Well, you know, so just to play devil's advocate there, you know, I, because of the subtlety and, and how they show him, like, looking at his son in an earlier picture and his struggle, his struggle for me seemed less racist and more fueled by grief. Yes. And, and and so like when he says let them die, yes, it's directed toward the Klingon, but it could have been any other race that had taken his son and he would have reacted the same way. Right. But see then then also you if you look at it from the angle that he is condemning an entire race of people because of an incident that was perpetrated by Krug and carried out by Maltz. Right. Where, you know, it's not like the Klingon high command ordered that David, um, David be killed. Right. So, yeah, and I I hear you. So there's no doubt that it's, he's not thinking logically about it. No, there's no doubt. But, but, when you when you're if you if you are if that's still a fresh pain for you that you haven't dealt with his his reaction seems understandable to me even if it's oh, not I, if it's not I even, totally agree yeah even even if it's not certainly not starfleet and it's certainly not it's certainly not vulcan it's not logical but but he is he is he he he's feeling the pain very deeply yeah um, yeah so yeah, well that scene. So that scene, how we got a lot of talking stuff out of that scene. That's it. That is a great scene because of the many layers that are in it. And, oh yeah, uh, I love the quote by uh, Chancellor Gorkon. Well, I see we still have a long way to go. You know, <laughs> I'm like, okay, yes, 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 we do. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, even by the end of the movie, in that throne, I call it the throne room scene. I don't know what they actually call it, but the, you know, the scene where everyone's there in the they save the chancellor. They save the uh, whoever it is that's speaking, and even there, when they kind of there's this solidarity and us, you know, suing for peace. It's not 
left. I'm not left feeling like, oh, everything's going to be hunky dory now. Like they know they develop that there's going to be some resistance to this. This is new. This is this is changing the way we've done things. And, oh yeah, and that doesn't come without its own own level of pain and struggle and uh, things that we have to overcome. No, uh, you know the at this point. The Klingons and the Federation have been enemies for a very, very long time. And you are not going to bring peace about shortly. I mean, it's going to be hammered out. Okay. What this does is say, yeah, we're going to open the door now and we're going to talk with each other and we're going to get, we're going to make peace. And then after that is the hard part is actually hammering out uh, agreements in order to be uh, not at war anymore. Right. You know, what does that look like? Well, you know, and this is the, uh, this is the story that, that comes after that we don't see in the movie, but right. Yeah. And, yeah. and I mean, you even get a glimpse of that after Gorkin is killed. And as it were is, is becomes chancellor herself. And her uh, generals, or whatever they are, are telling her, you know, look, this is the time to to attack. This is the time to to go to war. They're not expecting it. We can actually have a good chance to win. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and I hear that. I hear that. Was was her role a bit weird? And you know much more about. Klingon culture and thought and philosophy being being a female in that role I was surprised that the Klingons and the little I know the Klingons those those warriors listened to her am I a little bit of miss in my do I misunderstand Klingon culture as far as being their the strong females that in leadership because most of them are male that you see at least in the movies up to this point it is um and see that that's something that i have given a great deal of thought to because now if you go back to deep space nine and you consider martok right when when Worf and jadzia are going to get married martok's wife comes on the scene right right and you watch that episode and you look who is in charge and it ain't general martok that's in charge it is his wife oh yes okay so it you think about the way the society might be arranged is the men go off as warriors and they fight the battles and they fight the wars and they do all the conquering and everything and who runs the household who is actually the head of the house? It is the women. Yeah. Sounds a little bit of traditional Italian to me, you know. The, the mom rules the roost and you do not mess with mama. So there you go. But, so it, yeah. And you know, that that that's one facet, I guess, that I see. And then of course there are the Dura sisters who were who were running their own house. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's true. 
Um, you know, the other part, the other part I want to talk about a little bit is the whole courtroom scene. So what made that like when I when I rewatched that, it seemed to drag a little bit for me. And I don't know if that's just modern sensibilities. It's it's good. And what they develop and how Chang like um you know, you know, hangs, you know, McCoy and Kirk out to dry and uh mm-hmm. and 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 obviously they drop evidence and there is like how could they get his personal recordings when we find out later on how that plays into it. And it, while it was neat to see Worf argue kind of as a defense attorney for them, it just seemed to drag a little bit. You know, watching the courtroom scene and then watching it on the Enterprise as, as Spock sitting there watching it play out. Uh, did, it, mm-hmm. Am I over reading that or did, did, did it drag a little bit? Uh uh, not not to my point of view okay. it didn't this was this was a show trial uh it was it was a spectacle that was intended to be seen i think and so it had to be paced you know everybody knew kirk and spock or excuse me kirk and mccoy were done they were they were going to the, they were finished right and they weren't going to come back and so in order to prevent a war they decide to commute the sentence to life on Rurapente. uh you know look at us klingons we we can be magnanimous too right you know and and i think i don't know it it i don't think it didn't seem to be draggy to me, but it it was adequate for what it was supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was definitely definitely a show trial in that. Oh yeah, it was uh, very dramatic. Yeah, I especially loved uh, Chang. You know, don't wait for the translation. Tell me now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were, again. There's some great lines in that in yeah. that scene. In that scene. Well, you know where that comes from, don't you? No, that's Adelaide Stevenson in the United Nations uh, going after uh, just before the the Cuban or during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yes, he was. Yes, he was going. He was going after the Russian ambassador. And he said, you know, uh, haven't you done that? I can't remember exactly what the words were, but don't don't wait for the translation. Answer me now. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, I think one of the things that people liked about the movie was all of the historical references in it, like the Nixon go to China line, you know, and um, um, there were others. And, uh, you know, it's it, it kind of holds this, you know, it, it makes this movie work on multiple levels. But yeah. But. Well, see, and and I think a lot of that, unfortunately, now is lost well, on yeah. us because uh, I lived during that time. You know, I remember Nixon going to China, <laughs> and and how impressive that was. That here is probably one of the most anti-communist people that have ever walked the earth. 
actually goes to China to try to negotiate and hammer out a way to get along. Right. I mean, that's that's just amazing. Yeah, yeah. But, of course, no one remembers that because of everything else that went on with Nixon, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, it's really sad yeah. when when someone can accomplish the things that Nixon did and then just throw it all away. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I like the, <laughs> fact, been a- I like the, I like the fact that Spock informs that that is an ancient Vulcan proverb. <laughs> Only Mexico to China. I'm like, okay, you know, but anyways, it's, it's, it's a, um, again, you know, this movie, I don't know if it's a miles mentioned. It's his favorite, one of his favorite movies. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you were to look at this in line with the six first six movies, would this be your favorite movie? No, no, it wouldn't. What, what? I, I would have, I would, I would have to go with Star Trek Five. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I'm going to throw in with everybody else and and say, you know, Wrath of Khan is probably my favorite of all the Star Trek movies, yeah. no matter no matter which era. Yeah, it, it it's so. It's just a, a a great great film about a conflict between two people, one who wants to rule everything, and another who just never followed up on on a situation that he created. Right. Uh, this one, yeah, I would say it fits into the top five. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So. <sighs> I like Khan, but, uh, and I, I like this movie, but if I were to rate the top six movie, like the, the first six movies, I would have mm-hmm. seen Voyage Home probably is my favorite. Ah. I love it. I, I think what I like is I like the, the ecological story, but I also love the humor in it. It had such a good balance. Uh, you know, you throw the crew back into modern day San Francisco and voila, how do they react? It's fun. It's a fun story. Um, I think maybe that's why I place that one up there. And I think this one would have to be, might, might be my second one. And then Wrath comes third for me. But I'm, maybe, oh. maybe I'm more of an anomaly. It's, it's not, and when I say that, it's like splitting hairs with I enjoyed all three of the movies for different reasons. Well, exactly. And so it's a little bit unfair to put them in equal playing fields because, this movie that we were reviewing, Star Trek Six, doesn't accomplish something different than what the Voyage Home did, and certainly than what Wrath did. See, I, I, I would. It's too bad we don't have Miles here because I would be interested to see what Miles, how Miles would shake it out. Yeah, I don't know. It'd be interesting, Miles. You're going to listen to this podcast. You will have to let us know on the next yes, show please. how how you would shake out this. How you would stack up the first six movies here? Okay, so I, I'm going. I'm going to go out on a limb here, just a little bit, Scott, for a second, and say, on the outset, you admitted that you weren't a diehard Trek fan. Well, yeah, and so 
I did not get into Trek till like when I say get into Trek, like watch all this. It's probably five years ago. I got in and absolutely began to like watch all the next gen, all of Voyager, all of DC nine, um, you know, watch all the movies. Yeah. And, and I'm so, only now working through enterprise and I've never completed a rewatch of the original series. Oh, Ooh. Yeah. That's probably, that's probably the easiest. See now, I've been watching Star Trek since I was 10 years old. Right. And I I never get tired of it. It never gets old for me. Even and when I do a rewatch of the series, I watch them all. Even the bad episodes. I I, I watch them all because it's it's just my thing. So I wonder I wonder if a more and I'm not I'm not necessarily referring to you this way, uh, but but more of a casual Star Trek fan has a different point of view than a uh, diehard Star Trek fan. Yeah, and I would not classify myself as being diehard. Like like you and Miles have a, have a have a different level of Trekdom than I do, even though, yeah. even though I appreciate it. One of those things where you say, okay, if you were stuck on a desert island and you could only take one franchise along with you, what would you take? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, I don't know. It might be, <laughs> it might be the current series I'm reading. I'm just kidding. But because <laughs> I'm really enjoying it. Um, yeah. Um, well, I think I, th- I think we did a good job talking about this movie tonight. I don't know that we need to say a lot more about it. I mean, you can always talk about the music, the special effects, and and other things, but uh, there's so many other people that have talked about this movie, and this is kind of our thoughts and our review of this movie. And any other yeah. any final thoughts on this movie uh, before we uh, wrap it up? Well, yeah, as you mentioned, the music. Uh, one thing that that I thought was really special about this is that Nick Meyer gave an opportunity to a composer that had not done any Star Trek before. Okay. It wasn't Horner. It wasn't courage. It wasn't, uh, anybody like that. And this guy was, was just getting started as a composer. And I think he did an awesome job. And I'm looking for his name now because it it got away. Uh, Cliff Cliff Edelman, Edelman, I think it was Cliff Edelman, was a composer and gave this guy a break, and and he did an incredible job. That opening music uh, that comes over the credits just before Proxus blows up, and and it builds and it builds and it builds. And all of a sudden, you get the the big, the big horn, and cymbal crash, and everything, and uh, just a second of silence, and then boom, you get you get that uh, moon exploding. Oh yeah, uh, I mean, th- this guy really, really did well. No, I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Well, very good. Very good. Well, Jim. Uh, I re- we Miles and I both really appreciate you coming on the uh, the show tonight and talking Star Trek uh, six with us, and uh, it, it's been fun, man. Yeah, 
You bet. So we'll thank have... you for inviting me. I no I, problem. I love to talk track. I don't get to do it very often. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we'll have to uh, down the road. There's a, we still have at least a bunch more movies to walk through. So who knows? Maybe we'll tap you on the shoulder in a few months from now. So oh hey, anytime, man, anytime, <laughs> anytime. Well, again, before we go, where can people find out more about you, Jim, and and what you're doing and what you are delving into? Okay, well, I'm on Facebook, just just my name on Facebook. I have a Twitter account that is not very not very active. Um there's my blog, jimsci-fi.blogspot.com. You can find me on the Babylon Project podcast, the Bound by Honor podcast uh from cag.org. You can find me on um the Orbital Sword and uh dune saga podcast uh yeah the uh, places like that awesome. and uh just give me a shout out and i'll talk back yeah absolutely absolutely well again we really appreciate you coming on tonight and uh, thank, thank you. you for joining us well i believe that about wraps up the show show and uh miles isn't here to take us out so i'll take his line he says until next time good night and good luck if you've enjoyed the conversation, the owners of this establishment would love to hear from you. Send your comments and feedback to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast at gmail.com or join our Facebook page at facebook.com slash sci-fi diner. <laughs>